0: Good evening, everyone. I'd like to advise you to take out your Bibles and to turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Good to see everyone here tonight. Uh, thankful for our visitors as well. Um, but really enjoyed uh, being with you guys so far. Um, seeing a little bit more of your town, Jessup. Mike gave me a good little tour tonight. We uh, got done eating a little bit early. Uh, Didn't get to see the plant play. Uh I think the will give you maybe a little bit closer look uh, later on in the week, perhaps, but um, got to go jogging today, and um, you, sh- you strangely have a lot of Floridian elements here in this town, don't you? Some palm trees and some moss hanging everywhere, and I haven't been able to do anything with my hair since I got here. The event is, uh, is a little worse than in Auburn, so I didn't bring my product, so I'm in trouble. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, really enjoyed being with you guys, uh, Get to know Billy at lunch as well, and I'm um, certainly looking forward to the rest of our time together. Galatians chapter two and verse twenty, very well-known verse. Uh, We sing this verse sometimes in a song. Uh, Paul says, "I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which now I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me." Um, One of the songs that we often sing, by way of invitation, is the song "I Surrender All." And it's so familiar to us. We've been singing it for so long that I think sometimes when when we sing it, there's somewhat of a monotony that uh, comes with it. And when that monotony sets in, uh, our temptation uh, while singing it can sometimes be uh, to just go through the motions, maybe singing the melody, but not so much thinking about the words um, and with understanding. Uh, After all, it's the end of the worship service when we usually sing this song, and a lot of us are tired and hungry and ready to go home and whatnot. But we are going to sing this um, by way of invitation uh, at the end of the lesson. And if we don't sing that song tonight with renewed vigor and enthusiasm, then I'm going to feel like I haven't done my job. Because the title of my lesson tonight is, I Surrender All. Um, Surrendering the will to Jesus is that latter stage of faith where our conviction and our trust in God begins to develop into an actual submission to his ideals and desires. Uh, And submission is that stage in our faith from which obedience flows. Um, It won't surprise the majority of us here though to realize that this idea of submission or obedience or works has become one of the most controversial spiritual battles that we're going to engage in as evangelistic Christians. Because as most of us here are aware, the predominant teaching of uh, mainstream secular denominations is that there is nothing one must do in order to actually be saved. Uh, it's the teaching that if there is something that we have to do, that would be the same thing as earning our salvation, which to many in their minds would that would negate the grace of God. And we're going to spend a little, just a little bit of time showing why this can't be the case. I don't want that to be the main theme of the lesson, uh, but scripturally speaking, um, you know, have you ever wonder where this came from? I mean, where did people get the idea that there's nothing you have to do to be saved when there were people in the Bible who actually asked the question, what must I do to be saved? I mean, where did people get this idea from? Well, you have to go back to the late 1500s when religious reformers were attempting to counter the works-oriented salvation that was being enforced by the Catholic Church of that era. And if there's ever Common thread throughout human history, it's that we have an affinity as a human race of attempting to avoid one extreme by running to the other extreme, which was unfortunately the overwhelming response of those reformers during that day. And so, men like Martin Luther, John Wycliffe, John Huss, as well as uh, many others, um, you know, as well intentioned as these people may have been, they tackled the extremisms of the work oriented religious system of that day. By suggesting that salvation in Christ is solely by faith alone, apart from any works whatsoever. And the various Protestant denominations that came out of that movement, uh, strengthened later by uh, religious crusaders such as Billy Graham, uh, made salvation by faith only, apart from any act of obedience whatsoever, uh, a central tenet to their teaching. And they taught that the mechanism... In which salvation by faith only, apart from any act of obedience, uh, comes about through the uh, sinner's prayer. Um, Yet prayer is something that you do, isn't it? So go figure. Uh, But if salvation by faith only is true, that would certainly leave no room whatsoever for surrendering our will to God's will. ...as part of the salvation process. Though Hebrews 11 and verse 6 teaches us very clearly that biblical faith is something that involves diligently seeking God. So in talking about the idea of surrender or surrendering of the will, uh, I want to talk about first of all what it's very clearly not. Uh, Surrendering and submitting to God while necessary to saving faith has nothing whatsoever to do with earning our salvation. But... Since mainstream religions teach that we are saved by faith alone, apart from any works at all, surely, surely they have some verses that they stand on to try to support this teaching, right? Well, of course they do. So let's look at two of the biggest ones that they stand on, and let's think about what they say. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look there first. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is one of the biggest ones uh, that is brought up to me when I'm sitting and uh, talking with people about what the gospel actually is. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. This will be very familiar to a lot of us here. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, very straightforward. Look in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Romans 3, verse 28. This is another big one. Romans 3, verse 28. In Romans 3, verse 28, Paul says that we maintain that a man is justified justified by faith apart from works of the law. And, brethren, one of the things I always try to make sure I tell people who bring up these two verses is I believe these verses. I don't have a problem with these verses. There's not a single verse in the Bible that you can bring up that I'm going to have a problem with, including these two verses. But you know what else I believe? I believe James chapter 2 and verse 24, which says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. See, I believe that verse too. I'm not just taking the other two verses and saying, because those two verses say that, I can cancel out this verse over here. No, there's got to be something we can do to bring these two seemingly contradictory verses together and get the actual truth out of it and what God intended for us to believe about these verses. And since all three of these verses, Ephesians 2:8-9, Romans 3.28, James 2.24, have to be true, they can't contradict one another. There has to be a reason why. And if you look at the context, I think the reason is very straightforward. If you look back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, the key phrase in those verses is not of yourselves, not of ourselves, okay? That's what we might call works of merit, doing good things and expecting we're going to be saved as a result of good acts. It's almost like saying, you know, I haven't murdered anybody. You know, I, I, I give the charity. I do good things. I help elderly ladies cross the street. I go visit peoples in orphans' homes and, 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 and in old folks' homes. I, I do all these great things. It's not like I'm Hitler. And what a person is really saying is, relative to a lot of people, I've been a really good person. And there are many people who believe that on that basis they can be saved. In Ephesians 2.8.9, that's exactly what Paul says cannot save you. And that's not what James was talking about when he said that we're being justified by works. I don't believe that for a second. I think Romans 3, verse 28 is even easier because it explicitly refers to what kinds of works Paul is talking about that doesn't save you. Look again at Romans 3, 28. It says works of what? Works of the law. That being the law of Moses. And of course we would agree that the works of the law of Moses cannot be saved. That's just another merit-based mindset. Which many Jews had held themselves to, conveniently ignoring the fact that in order to be justified by the law of Moses, it meant that you had to keep the entire law of Moses. That's not something that anybody was able to do. And if you could do it, you'd have reason to boast about it, as Paul even alluded to in Romans chapter 4, but we can't because Romans 3.28, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But again, if Romans 3.28 means no acts of obedience whatsoever, no works whatsoever, why do you suppose Paul, at the beginning of Romans and at the end of Romans, uses the phrase obedience of faith? Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Let's look at that. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 5 of Paul, this is at the beginning of his letter. He's he's trying to set the the stage for what he's going to talk about. And he says in Romans 1 and verse 5 that through Jesus we have received grace. Notice that word grace. We've received it. Grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. At the end of the letter, Romans 16, verse 26. Look in Romans 16, in verse 26. Paul concludes this letter. Makes the same exact statement, almost. Romans 16, verse 26, he says, But now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to what? Leading to obedience of faith. So these verses, found in the same letter, to the same people seem to imply that despite the fact that our works can't save us, true faith, true living faith, it's an obedient faith. And if it's an obedient faith, brethren, that means that it is a working faith. There's no way around it. It's a working faith. And if no works save, why did Jesus say in John chapter 6 and verse 28 and 29 that believing in him is a work? They asked the question in John, 26, uh, or John 6, verse 20 and 29, uh, Lord, what can we do in order to work the works of God? And he says, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. So that just faith alone uh, without any works, uh, that, that, just, that doesn't really add up. Not when you look at all these verses that are just thrown at us all throughout Scripture. Here's the deal. Merit-based works do not save. Works based on the law of Moses, do not say. But to surrender our will to God, when that surrender stems from a heart of trust that is motivated by love, brethren, that has nothing to do with meriting or earning a thing. Because surrendering to God is coming to Him not on our terms, we didn't set the terms. Surrendering to God is coming to him on his terms, in full acknowledgement of our inability to live up to his standards, which can therefore rightfully ask God, what must I do or what can I do to be saved? And we must go into this with a full understanding, even as we do the things that he's told us to do, that despite anything we could ever do in this surrender, We are unworthy servants. Just as Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verse 10. The truth is, Jesus asked us to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of our sins. That that is one of the most passive acts of faith that he demands of us. Especially when you consider the fact that somebody else is doing the baptizing. And when someone suggests to me that the effort behind baptism makes this some kind of work of merit, I suggest right back that it takes far more effort on one's part to actually repent of their sins or to even develop the necessary faith that drives repentance than it does to simply ask someone to baptize me in water in submission to the will of my Savior. Surrender of the will can never be salvation that is earned when I surrender my life knowing the utter, unworthy position that I've got myself into Because of my sin. And that leads me to the second point about what submission is not. That much of this surrender of will that we're talking about when we're surrendering all. It has so much to do with the motive behind the surrender. And the motive behind this submission of our will. And as far as what the New Testament teaches. Is it's not primarily motivated by fear. It's primarily motivated by love. Now that is not to say that fear has no part whatsoever in our salvation, or that fear is not important in the life of a Christian. It absolutely is. Scripture says it is. But Scripture also says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the attitude that begins the journey for the person who's learning to serve the Lord. But once we've been schooled in the fear of the Lord, the driving Force behind saving faith as taught in the New Testament as we learn from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6 where Paul says it's faith working through love. Yes, it's that, it's love. And, and there's so many other verses that make this contrast. Brother. Let's look in Romans chapter 8. I want to just show you a few. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. Paul says there, Romans 8 verse 15. For you, talking to Christians, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Look in First John 4 and verse 18. 1 John 4 and verse 18 Uh, here John says uh, in a verse that's very um, uh, similar to many verses he speaks about in the uh, gospel that he wrote as well as the other two epistles, he says in 1 John 4 verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and notice this last part, the one who fears, he's not perfected in love and then one more, John 14 verse 15, you almost don't even have to turn there because we know the verse, if you love me you will keep my commandments, right? John 14, verse 15. See, the difference between a faith driven by fear and a faith driven by love, it's almost like the difference between the adolescent and the adult. You know, a child is more inclined to obey his father out of fear because he's going into this thing with the sort of the motive of, you know, oh dad, do I have to? Remember parents when your kids said that when you try to get them to do that, oh, do I have to do this? And, of course, you tell them very, or maybe just a look on your face, tells them, yes, you have to do this, because what's going to happen if you don't? You know, there's there's fear involved when they're growing up, right? But as you get older, and you're still listening to your parents and obeying them, and and you go home to visit them, it's no longer, Mom, Dad, do I have to? It's, Mom, Dad, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? You see the difference in the motive? One is driven by fear. One's so scared to death that they're going to get a lashing. That's why they do it. The other one loves and respects their parents so much. It's not, what do I have to do? Is there anything else I can do for you because of everything you've done for me? Are you earning anything when you have that attitude as a daughter? Or are you just so filled with love for your parents that that's why you do it? You see, why, it has nothing to do whatsoever with earning your salvation. Not when you're driven by love. And a surrendering of our will to our God and Father through Jesus Christ is complete when we serve Him. As 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7 says, not grudgingly or under compulsion. Surrender of the will is ultimately a motivation of love that graduates beyond that fear and that trembling that we saw in the Old Testament days. Those, you know, those Israelites' fears, they, they oftentimes fizzled, did they not? But as 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us, love never fails. Mm -hmm. Third, surrender the will has nothing to do whatsoever with whether or not we understand why God commands us of what he does. Um, The fact that he is God and the fact that I am man means he's going to think and he's going to act in ways that I have not and cannot, which is why Isaiah says what he does in Isaiah 55. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. You remember Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5? Let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. I think he's the ultimate exact example of this. Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. This was a guy who had to come to grips with this when he was told by Elisha that in order to be healed from his leprosy, he was going to have to dip seven times in the Jordan River. And Naaman, he he had the conviction of mind about the God of the Jews, and he certainly trusted him enough that he was going to get some healing. But see, where Naaman's faith struggled is that he just couldn't wrap his mind around the command. He couldn't wrap his mind around the thing that he was told to do. Here was the command in 2 Kings 5, beginning in verse 10. It says, "Elisha, uh, Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not the Abaddon and the far part of the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel?
1: Can I not wash in them and
0: be clean? And then it says he turned away and went away in a rage. You see how angry he got when the Lord commanded something that didn't meet his expectations. But you know what one of the biggest pet peeves of doctors is a, is a, you know, a patient who tries to do their own doctoring? You, you know, oh, I saw it on MayoClinic.com. This is what I need to do. Oh, really? Okay. Well, you know, Heather probably knows that and some of you other nurses out there. That's a big pet peeve of, of doctors. And if it weren't for and servant talking some sense into him, he would have likely died in that condition see, surrender to will is something we do even if we don't always understand the instruction. Hebrews 11 and verse 8 tells us that Abraham obeyed God by going to Canaan even though he didn't know where he was going. And what does the beginning of the verse tell us about Abraham? Why did he do it? He did it by faith. Think about it this way, brethren. If we were so smart we would have never gotten ourselves in this awful predicament called sin in the first place. So as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18, Let no man deceive himself. If any man thinks that he is wise in his age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And so what I'm suggesting is that much of this surrendering of the will to God is going to boil down not to just trusting God, but how much do we trust Him beyond what we think that we know. Um, Fourth, surrender of the will... I'll make this very clear. It's not done from a position of weakness. Surrender of the will is done from a position of strength. And I'm going to try to make sure that I qualify this point a little bit better. Uh, but not understanding this point is another reason why I think that it can be so hard to do. Because you know what submission really involves? It involves a putting of self under. It involves allowing someone else to be the final arbiter in decisions that I make. And that is tough. Because when I do like Naaman and I start questioning a direction because God wants me to to go there and I don't understand it, and we start thinking, well, that can't be right. Look at everything that God is missing in the equation here. Uh, And, of course, we're always going to be more likely to think it than we are to actually say it. But, But, you see, surrendering and submitting to God is not about God subjecting us. He could have done that, right? God has enough power to subject any of us if he wants to. He could have chosen to save us by the tip of the sword. He could have forced us into obedience like we were robots. But instead, what God decided is, I'm going to give my people an objective truth that they can hear. And then they will make the choice whether or not they want to respond to it. And brethren, what that means is that when I do choose to surrender my will to God, I'm doing it from a position of strength because I'm choosing to do it. Nobody's forcing me to do it. Why would I choose something like that? Why would I choose to give up everything for Jesus Christ? Well, I think 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14 tells us. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, Paul says... For the love of Christ controls us. I like better some of the versions some of you might have out there. It says the love of Christ compels us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Do you see the contrast in this verse? Christ's love toward us compels us to move in a certain direction. That's obedience. And that when we do, we're no longer living for ourselves. And that right there implies it could never be by merit. I think those two verses right there teach this principle that we're talking about. Brethren, there is no greater position of strength that speaks more highly of a person's character than to recognize the utter futility of his circumstances, and then to utterly and wholly uh, completely place himself under the headship and direction of the cosmic king of the universe because we are so overwhelmed by the love that he has poured out on us. That's from a position of strength. That mindset breeds a surrender and submission that can never come to God on on man's own terms, but on God's terms. We can never have earned anything. Or believe that we've ever earned anything. And then fifth, surrender the will. It's not a conditional surrender. When we sing, I surrender some, is that what we sing? I surrender some. Are we going to do that tonight? No. We're going to say, I surrender all, because what we're doing is we're recognizing it's absolute surrender. I suppose the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19 is probably one of the greatest examples of this. I mean, he seemed, this guy seemed like he had all the tools to become one of Jesus' greatest disciples. We would be thrilled if the rich young ruler walked in these doors tonight and after sitting to our service and said, I want to be a member of this church. You'd be thrilled because this guy seemed like he had it going on. But the Lord, who knows the heart of all, he knew that this young man had one hang-up that would keep him from surrendering himself. Verse 21 of Matthew 19, Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Surrender the will cannot be conditional. And that's why the song is entitled, I Surrender All. That word, surrender, um, it's actually a battle term. It means that we are giving up every single one of our rights to the one who has conquered us. When an opposing army surrenders, they throw down their weapons and they give the victor complete control. You see, it's not a conditional surrender with God. Some of you might have heard the story about uh, the Knights of Templar when they would be baptized when the Knights of Templar back in the medieval ages would be, would be baptized, uh, they were immersed, many of them, but they would hold their swords above their head as they were going under. And every part of their body, they would allow that priest to baptize them except for their sword. You know why? Because what they were saying was, Lord, you can have every single part of me that you want. I give everything to you, but when I'm on that battlefield, the sword belongs to me. That's why they did that. And we think, well, that's, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. We would never do something like that today, right? right? That is until we start replacing that sword with our wallet. Or with a relationship that we don't want to give up. Or with some bitterness or resentment that we're holding on to. What if I'm holding on to something and denying God... And it's just a hobby. It's just a dream. We say, well, that's not as ridiculous as those guys with the sword, but but it really is when you think about it. Folks, it it can't work that way. The surrender God commands from us, it can never be conditional. And Jesus tells us exactly why in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. In Matthew 6 and verse 24, Jesus says no one can serve two masters. That's why. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and will. So it's not conditional. It's, it's absolutely absolute surrendering is. So I want to give you three things about surrendering the will, what it is. And I'm going to try to do this very quickly I've taking up a lot of time telling you what it's not. I want to spend some time talking about what it actually is. I just want to give you three things, and the lesson's going to be yours. Um, number one. When we are surrendering, we are surrendering to the authority of the conqueror. Um, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, a very familiar (laughs) verse to us. uh, All authority has been given to me in heaven on earth, talking about Jesus, right? Surrendering is turning over authority to Jesus. Now, what's interesting about this is Jesus already has all authority, right? I mean, whether we choose to, to turn ourselves over to the one authority, he's already got it. It's it's already his. No no choice that we make is going to deny him what he already has. So he's got it. What we have to decide we're going to do is whether we're going to yield to it. That's the choice we have to make. And by surrendering, we're acknowledging it and submitting to the conditions of that surrender. And I'm going to tell you this, folks. That kind of surrendering can be very difficult for those who haven't yet realized that they've lost the battle. Um, there's a book out there called "No Surrender: My 30-Year War." Has anybody ever heard of that book before? Um, it's a true story about a um, Japanese-born soldier uh, named Lieutenant Hiro Anoda. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, he was the last Japanese-born soldier. ...to surrender in World War II. And what had happened was, Anoda, during World War II, he had been stationed on Lubang Island in the Philippines... ...when the Philippines was taken over by U.S. forces in February 1945. And just about all of Anoda's comrades had been either killed or captured. But Anoda and several of his men held out, and they went and hid in the jungles of the Philippines... And while his fellow evaders were eventually killed, Anoda, get, get this, for 29 years after the war ended. 29 years after the war ended. I mean, that's getting into the, the 70s. Every single attempt people made to coax him out of the jungle and to surrender, he completely refused. For 29 years after World War II. He wrote later in this book, That his primary motivation for not surrendering was his devout belief in the Japanese military code of discipline and honor, which meant never leaving his post until he received a specific order enabling him to do so. So this guy, this guy finally in 1974, I'm serious, 1974, 30 years after World War II ended, the Japanese government sent its commanding officer to Lubang in order to get nota to finally surrender And when Anoda, Lieutenant Anota, stepped out of the jungle to accept the order, he was wearing the same uniform with his sword and his rifle still in operating condition. Brethren, if this doesn't describe many a person's journey to Christ, I, I don't know what does. I mean, to hold out surrendering authority to the conqueror of conquerors, to evade being captured by the love of Jesus... Against an infinitely inferior enemy who has enslaved us, who has kicked us around and cares not one lick about us. It truly defies logic. The people out here, they, they do it every day. They're just like Lieutenant Anoda. Surrendering the will to Jesus is waving the white flag of surrender to the only authority that there is. There is no other authority except his But there's more to it than even that. Secondly, we're also surrendering to him because of who he is. So we're surrendering to his authority, but we're also surrendering to his person. You see, Anoda's problem is the same as ours. And it's that he did not know the greater blessings being offered by the ones in authority that were calling for his surrender all those 30 years. Um, Some of you that know your World War II history uh, will know that General MacArthur was the one appointed to be Supreme Commander of Occupied Japan. uh, And he commanded them from 1945 to 1952, so about seven or eight years. And during that time, MacArthur and his staff, he wrote for Japan a new constitution that released them from the uh, shackles of imperialism to the freedom of democracy, and that is the same exact constitution that's governing them this this very day. And when MacArthur finally left Japan after those seven years of being there, over 200,000 Japanese men and women lined the streets to honor him. And in 1960, the Japanese gave him the highest honor that could be given to a foreign national. It's called the Order of the Rising Sun. And all that time, when the Japanese were utterly thrilled that they had been conquered, Anoda's out there running around in the Philippine jungle, still thinking there's a war going on, like like an absolute imbecile, not realizing the greater blessing he could have had if he would have just surrendered. He didn't know how good he could have had it. You know, every country of which the Americans gained control after World War II became free, thriving democracies. West Germany, under American control, became the foremost economic power in Europe. But on the other hand, every country that the Russians occupied became virtual prison camps. East Germany, under the Russians, became destitute, practically enslaved. They were forced to build the Berlin Wall not to uh, uh, keep people in, but to keep them from getting out communist countries called themselves workers' paradise, but they had to build walls and barbed wire fences to keep the workers from escaping this so-called paradise. And I'm not just trying to give you a history lesson. The reason I'm telling you this, brethren, is that it, it very much matters the person to whom we surrender to. And towards the end of the war, the German army was rushing to surrender to the Americans rather than to the Soviets. Thousands of Poles defected from the Soviet Army to the American forces, though Eisenhower turned them back to the Russians to face prisoner death. And to Roosevelt's eternal shame, Stalin and communism, they gained this Eastern Europe, uh, Manchuria, and ultimately China through treacherous agreements. I'm trying to tell you that it matters very much, not just the authority, but the person to whom we surrender. And here's the person in Jeremiah 29 verse 11. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. The Lord said to the Jews, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. God's plan for us is always in our best interest. He conquers us, brethren, not to enslave us. That's what the devil has done. Jesus conquers us to bless us. And that leads me to my last point, and that is what we become once we allow ourselves to be conquered. It's what we become once we surrender. Back in the days of the Roman Empire, um, there were Roman galley ships that sailed the open seas, and the ones who rode these Roman galley ships, they, they were slaves. Regardless of the crime that you had committed, if you were sentenced to a Roman galley ship, it was a lifetime sentence. You would sit chained in that galley, and you would row, and you would row, and you would row until you died. Now, that death may be my natural causes. Uh, most likely, uh, it would be due to a war and just sinking to the bottom, or it could have been uh, due, to, due to disease or infection. Um, because you were chained to that position. They never unchained you for any reason whatsoever. Uh, you might die from extreme exhaustion or from beatings you would under, un, undertake when the exhaustion prevented you from rowing. And I tell you, if, if it were up to me, I think I'd rather just have them kill me than sentence me to, to that boat. It was, it was an awful, awful thing to be sentenced to. Death would be more favorable. Now, I want you to imagine something for me. Imagine that you have been a slave on one of these Roman galley ships for years and years, and then one day while that ship is docked, and you're chained at the bottom, you can't get out and have any reprieve whatsoever, you're chained there, but one day while you're chained there, there's a wealthy plantation owner who boards the ship, and he comes down into the galley, and he sees you. He sees you there, filthy exhausted, diseased, infested, without any hope of any type of life outside of that bondage. And I want you to imagine while he sees you sitting there in that condition that he takes pity on you. And he comes up to you and he wakes you and he says, I want to offer you the chance to come and live with me and I want you to be my slave and not a slave to the Romans. Work for me in my vineyard. Would you like that opportunity? (laughs) I mean, what would you say? I'd be like... Yes, yes, I will be your slave. I will wash your feet every day. I will do whatever it takes to, to get out of this condition. Any condition has got to be better than this one. But the moment you get excited, you realize, oh, I, I, I can't leave. There's no way the captain of this ship is, is going to let me go. I'm here because I'm being punished for a crime that I personally committed. And so you sadly expressed this to the wealthy plantation owner, thanking him for the offer but then he says to you you don't understand I've already taken care of that crime that you have committed I have offered the captain of this ship my one and only son to sit in your place and to bear that punishment for you my son is going to row in your stead the deal has already been made whether you want to accept it or not but will you accept it now will you come and be my slave and work on my vineyard Hey man, my, my, my heart would stop. I mean, this this person has given his only son to suffer through that agonizing, torturous punishment in my place for no other reason than the fact that he saw me, took pity on me, and wanted to help me. So, so you accept this offer, of course, and you go and you work in this man's vineyard as his slave, thinking about that son who's sitting in your place every single day. The brethren, it gets better. As you arrive at this plantation and you begin working as a slave, this wealthy landowner approaches you again and he says this. He says, I must confess, I did not actually hire you here just to be my slave. My purpose is to adopt you as my son. And as my adopted son, you will receive a portion of my inheritance. You really don't have any legal right to this inheritance, but I offer it to you anyway as my adopted son because I love you. What would you think of that? Offer. Would you hesitate to turn it down for even a second? I, I imagine I would hesitate for, for a lot of reasons. Some may say to this landowner, Master, I, I, I am unworthy of such an offer, for I was once a criminal, and to tell you the truth, I am still a criminal at heart, and I just don't feel worthy to even be here. And you know what that master would say to me and to you? He would say, Son, I loved you even when you were a convict, else I would not have given my son to take your place. That's what he would say. And brethren, I'm just trying to tell you, this is our story. That's our story. Ephesians 1 and verse 5, Ephesians 1 and verse 5, it says that in love, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. According to what? Kind intention of his will? To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Do you see now that Jesus Christ conquered us not so that we could be slaves, but so that we could be sons, and to share in his inheritance? Here's the irony. It's through Jesus that we, the conqueror, become the victors. That's the irony. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But that victory has to come first through our surrender. That's incredible. I know. That's the gospel. Now, I'm telling you, man, we can't get excited about that story and go tell people out there about that story and get excited about that. I tell you, I don't know what is going to excite us. I plan on talking about this a little bit Saturday morning. Folks, uh, you know evangelism? Evangelism is not about bringing in brother big personal worker out there and trying to convince us to be evangelist. Evangelism is about being fully dedicated to the gospel. If you get this, what we're talking about, you're going to be an evangelist. That's what produces evangelists. you see how surrendering to God, even though it does mean doing certain things, how it can never earn you one single thing? Not when we know who we are and not when we know where we came from. Not when we know who Jesus is and what he did for us. And so when Jesus tells me to do something in order to identify with what he did on the cross to save me from my sins, and that thing he's telling me to do is to be baptized in water, how could I ever deny it? It's a response to his overwhelming grace. So in the sermon as we began in Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And if you were not a Christian, if you have not surrendered to Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, this is a wonderful blessing that you could have in the store. If you will just come forward and make it known that you wish to become a Christian, we can baptize you right there. I'm assuming there's water. Yep, there's water right there. You won't earn a thing. But by surrendering, you will gain the victory. No more while we stand. and sing. <laughs>